Welcome to Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show, where we explore the intersections of art, politics, and culture as illuminated by Chicago's past. Along the way, we talk with fine folks doing the work of keeping the past present and show you the places where the city's history resides today. Near the end of the 19th century, a visiting labor leader called Chicago a, quote, pocket edition of hell. Asked if that was fair, he took in the corruption, inequality, and general nastiness and said, quote, on second thought, hell is a pocket edition of Chicago. But these are the stories, the people, and places that nudge us a bit closer to heaven. In this episode, we'll be talking again to Ward Miller, Executive Director of Preservation Chicago. In February of 2021, Preservation Chicago released their annual list of seven most endangered buildings. We'll be taking a deeper look at the list and discuss what these buildings are, why they should be preserved, and the challenges they're facing. Hi, Ward. Thanks for joining us again. How are you doing? Just great. Thank you for having us, Paul. Well, we're excited to be talking with you again uh, today, and we're really kind of excited about this list. Now, the list of seven most endangered buildings, this is something that Preservation Chicago has been putting out for almost two decades at this point. But would you mind telling our our listeners about how a building ends up on this list? Like, what are you guys looking for in in terms of determining the status and and, and why something is in danger or, or needs to be preserved? So it's, it's a rather lengthy and involved process. We outreach to uh, community members. Uh, we outreach to the media to ask uh, in early January uh, for uh, nominations. Actually, sometimes it even begins uh, in late December um, to, to identify buildings in their communities that they find important or buildings that they find uh, perhaps endangered. Uh, or with a uh, sort of an uncertain future, those that are um, also vacant, uh, those that they feel are just um, uh, maybe there's some some hint that uh, they are uh, facing uh, a demolition threat, and uh, so and then we also have our board of directors and our uh, and our general membership that also uh, reach out across the city and bring us. Um, information from uh, things that they've seen or that uh, uh, that they may have heard uh, are endangered in their communities across the city. And we have a very diverse board extending from Rogers Park and Jefferson Park on the north, the northwest side, uh, all the way south to, um, uh, to Roseland and Pullman and uh, the Riverdale community of Chicago on, on the far south side, and then extending westward as well. So uh, we have a very diverse board that uh, brings us information. Is always uh, looking for these buildings uh, that are that are potentially uh, endangered, and also, you know, streetscapes where where people feel that uh, you know a neighborhood or a streetscape may be endangered, and they bring that to us. We also uh, see articles in the media, of course, uh, that uh, bring attention to a certain or specific building or community. And we take all of that into consideration. And usually we have about 70 to 80 um, nominations that come in, and uh, we boil them down to uh, what we think is a good list of about 50. You know, we, we vet everyone. We find out, 
you know, if there is a plan for these structures um, or, or if there's a, you know, if it's a larger part of a larger plan development, uh, we sometimes reach out to ownership and uh, see what's going on. And then from that uh, point, the nominations are boiled down to about 50. And then our board makes uh, that decision after uh, going through uh, a litany of uh, circumstances surrounding each building. We boil it down to seven buildings. And of course, the Chicago 7 is a play on the Chicago 7 trial, also the Chicago 7 architects um, that were pushing back against modernism in the 70s in Chicago. And then also, seven's just really a good number. We find that if you go to 10, uh, chances are uh, the story sort of drops off after the sixth or seventh building or, or site or thematic district. So seven is a good number for us. And that's what we've been sticking to uh, for 18 years. Oh, wow. Well, let's take a look at the, the seven that made the cut this year in 2021. And we're going to start on, on the south side on uh, 75th Street. So I wanted to talk first about the Cornell Store and Flats. Uh, so the building is named for the individual who established the, the Hyde Park community in Chicago, Paul Cornell. Um, but can you tell us a, a little bit about the, the building itself? Um, what would people have seen when it um, first opened in, in the early 1900s? Sure. So uh, Port, uh, Paul Cornell, as you mentioned, is sort of considered the father of Hyde Park and Hyde Park Township, early founder. And um, after he passed away, his family invested in this little building, among other things. And this is the Cornell Store and Flats from 1908 by a really, really uh, internationally famous architect, uh, Walter Burley Griffin, who worked with Frank Lloyd Wright uh, in his studio. He married Frank Lloyd Wright, one of Frank Lloyd Wright's employees, uh, a, a woman named Marion Mahoney Griffin, um, Marion or Marion Mahoney, as she was known before she married Walter Burley Griffin. Um, and she was Frank Lloyd Wright's renderer. So if you look at some of these early renderings of Frank Lloyd Wright houses and the Prairie School houses, those were rendered by Marion, and she married um, Walter Burley Griffin. And they had an amazing career in the Chicago area and elsewhere, but uh, he won an international competition to design um, the Australian capital city of Canberra, where he moved, and he... Um, designed that capital city and several others, and also did quite a bit of work in India. Um, and, you know, here's the little building on 75th Street in Chicago. It's right at the Illinois Central, now Metro Electric, uh, viaduct and, uh, and railroad tracks. And it's one of those buildings that you can sort of pass by and not see because you're more, you're, you're concerned about uh, the wall creeping up on your right, going under the underduct, uh, the viaduct, and uh, and all the components of this um, this sort of intersection. But uh, this building is really, truly modern. It's from 1908. Most people on the 75th Street side see the commercial storefronts, uh, but what they're not seeing is uh, the whole three-story building, which includes several apartments that are accessed from the north elevation hmm. that uh, is, is spectacular as well. And that faces um, sort of a junkyard, if you will, or what was a junkyard, and um, sort of a brownfield site, but a really amazing building that uh, uh, some people in our city consider the most important neighborhood building 
that hasn't been protected um, by a landmark designation. So uh, this wonderful little building sits empty on 75th Street, right at the uh, Metroelectric uh, uh, Viaduct and Station. We'd like to see this integrated as part of that transit hub. Uh, it's got parking or vacant lots around it, so you know this could be a, a, a place where one could drive to, park, get on the train, and head downtown. Or, you know, it's also South Shore Station. Um, you know, you could go south or or north downtown. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is this could really be an amazing stop, which is currently a flag stop. Um, mm -hmm. But we think that it could really be envisioned as part of a larger development, maybe a couple of apartment buildings as well that could uh, be integrated into the site. But uh, we're really we're really hopeful, and we have the. Uh, we have Alderman Michelle Harris, who's very much in support of landmarking this and, um, and, and making the city and the Department of Planning and Development very much aware of her uh, desire to see this building preserved. And what are, are some of the particular challenges that it's facing? So you mentioned that, you know, it's currently, there's, it's not occupied. There are no stores in the stores. No one's living in, in any of the, the flats. Uh, does it have, you know, extensive architectural damage? I mean, is there a lot of rest restoration work that would need to be done? Well, you know, I think it needs all those usual things that, you know, an older building of this age uh, would need, you know, a new roof. It needs tuck pointing and maintenance. Uh, and there are some things like the front canopy uh, has got uh, a little bit of structural damage to it. But, you know, for a building that's, uh, you know, 115 years old or so, uh, you know, it's, it, it's in surprisingly good condition considering it's been vacant for about a decade. Uh, but we really need some attention on it quickly. And uh, I think the idea of, of linking it to the railroad station or maybe even being part of the railroad station is really an interesting idea and could activate the storefront um, and still have apartments above that could be affordable and reactivate 75th Street that has just seen so much disinvestment um, and there are vacant lots, you know, everywhere. And here's a building that's for sale for about $180,000, um, uh, plus or minus. And it'd be really see, it'd be really wonderful to see this, you know, masterpiece by uh, Walter Burley Griffin of the Frank Lloyd Wright and Prairie School uh, restored. So changing gears, we're going to stay on the south side and we're going to talk now about a structure um, that is much much larger uh, than the Cornell store and flats and that's the South Chicago Masonic Temple. Um, so Ward can you tell us a little bit about this building? Uh, when was it built? Who was the architect? And, and Right. It, right. Yeah. Uh, yes it was built in 1927 and uh, it was built as a Masonic Hall uh, for the South Chicago neighborhood, and uh, uh, you know, really a, an amazing little structure. We we saw another building, the South Side Masonic Temple near 63rd and Halstead, demolished a few years ago. And here's an amazing structure that uh, really could anchor 91st Street as an arts corridor uh, in the South Chicago neighborhood. It also has a remarkable church. Uh, school combination across the street, um, which is done in the Art Deco style. It's the former St. Peter and Paul Church and School, uh, where the school wraps around the church. And there's a, a health center just to the uh, south of this building uh, on 91st and Exchange. 
And it would be really wonderful if that health clinic, uh, which also owns St. Peter and Paul, now to uh, be able to uh, help anchor that corner of 91st and Exchange. There's also a beautiful Art Deco building just to the south of uh, the clinic, uh, a polychromed uh, Art Deco building in blues and, and, and pinks and ivory uh, terracotta. And, uh, you know, this is a neighborhood that uh, has also seen a lot of disinvestment and a lot of demolition over time. And it's, uh, you know, you get the feeling that there's kind of a little bit of a no-man's land uh, happening here because there's just been so much land clearance. Uh, so it would be really wonderful to uh, create um, uh, an arts court along uh, this 91st Street um, area, and uh, we're working with... Um, uh, numerous universities, uh, UIC in, in particular, the University of Illinois at Chicago, and uh, really hoping for a good outcome uh, for this building, which is just in dire straits. Well, you know, one thing that I find interesting about the two buildings that we've talked about so far and the approach that Preservation Chicago seems to take is that, you know, even though you're very interested in, in Chicago's past and in the buildings themselves and the architects who designed them, you're really kind of thinking about the, the role that these structures can play today and in, into the future and really, once again, kind of uh, giving them a very kind of like active role within particular communities. Does that kind of factor into how you, you know, select structures that, that make it on this list? Well, you know, I, I think there's, uh, I think we look at that, uh, but that does not um, determine our Chicago 7. Um, you know, there used to be a time, Paul, where all you had to do was approve a building, let's say downtown or, uh, you know, along the lakefront. Uh, it could be in Hyde Park. It could be, uh, you know, south side, north side, west side. Um, and all you had to do was prove that the building was uh, by a significant architect and, um and that it was, you know, groundbreaking, and it, uh, it, you know, it hits certain thresholds and structurally, you know, perhaps very interesting, and or the first of its kind or the best of its kind, uh, sort of museum quality, if you will. And um, you know, today, uh, and a lot of those buildings have been saved. Of course, we lost a number of them uh, in the early years, and you know, sometimes we still see some losses that are pretty tragic. Uh, but you know, in general, today. Uh, you know, we we come to the conclusion that uh, if we're going to put them on our Chicago 7 or even recommend them for landmark status, the Chicago landmark status, which is the only way to really protect these buildings with teeth, uh, protect them from demolition, whereas some of the other um, uh, honorary designations uh, don't actually protect, protect uh, buildings in the same way that the Chicago Landmarks Ordinance, uh, which is the strongest, protects buildings. Uh, from being demolished and lost, uh, what we what we find is that not only do we go through the exercise of of researching a building and determining its importance, uh, its architecture and its um, all of its legacies associated with its design, uh, structurally, architecturally, um, uh, planning wise, if you will, uh, execution, but we also look at uh, different solutions. Uh, to their preservation. Sometimes we find good stewards for these troubled buildings, in which case this, we all we ask is that the stewards in the city work together to preserve the buildings. And oftentimes, if we're involved, we, we request a, 
a landmark designation be considered as part of that renovation effort so that we're not trying we're not having to save these 25 years later because there have been some instances where we've done that um uh so it's it's really it's really fascinating we we try to put all of our uh, ideas together and um so that you know there's there's a plan it's not for for instance with the Cornell store and flats tying it to transportation and the train lines and the uh and and the uh transportation initiatives that the city's put out the TODs transit oriented development uh, and then working with, you know, uh, the existing owner and uh, developer, city, and alder, alder woman in this case, but elected officials at every level. Uh, and it's really been, we've seen some wonderful outcomes when we sort of bring all these ideas together. Even if those ideas change over time, at least it's a vision, which I think everyone can relate to. And that's really important, but it does not impact our um, our methodology on that, and you can see that in the Wheatley House uh, that's mm-hmm. also on, on one of our Chicago 7. Well, I'd like to talk about the, the Wheatley House now um, because that's an example of a structure where I think some of those good stewards that you mentioned seem to be in place. It's also interesting in that it's, it's on the list uh, as much, if not more, for its historical and cultural significance than it is for its architectural Significance. Can you tell us a, a little bit about what the Phyllis Wheatley home was? Sure. So Phyllis Wheatley herself um, lived in another era, sort of in the revolutionary years of, of America's formation, if you will. And uh, she was a former, um, uh, she was kidnapped uh, in West Africa and brought to America as a slave. Uh, she was uh, purchased by a family. Um, and and that family took a great interest in her and uh, uh, and, and taught her to read and write uh, and um, educated her and even taught her in Greek and Latin and she became America's first African American uh, published poet hmm. and um, I, I believe she was the first American uh, woman or the second American woman that was published uh, as well in the United States. So, uh, you know, Phyllis Wheatley herself uh, was an amazing woman. But in 1895, a group of African-American women uh, headed by Elizabeth uh, Lindsay Davis came together, five of them approximately, and formed what was called the Phyllis Wheatley Club. Now, Phyllis Wheatley herself had been gone for quite a while um, when this uh, group of African-American women came together. But they realized that there weren't places for uh, African-American women coming up from the the Deep South for a better life and better opportunities in Chicago uh, and elsewhere throughout the country. Um, And they were not allowed to uh, stay at the usual places for women, the Eleanor Clubs, the Three Arts Clubs, the YWCA, or even some of these hotels, and if you didn't have a family member here or friends to sponsor you, you didn't have a place to stay, and, and you know all sorts of trouble could become of you. So um, they established this Phyllis Wheatley um, home in Chicago. Uh, at least this is one of them that you saw in cities across the country. And the initial one was about where Lake Meadows is right now, 
and it moved to another site on Giles, which was known as Forest Avenue, and then to this location on mm-hmm. South Michigan Avenue in a building that was built in uh, 1895, and they um, they bought this building in 1925 to house 20, 22 African-American women. And this was a place where not only you had a room and you could stay, it was safe, but it had um, all sorts of uh, educational opportunities and etiquette uh, that was factored in so that the women that came out of the Wheatley House or lived at the Wheatley House really had all the tools they needed uh, you know, to uh, thrive in Chicago and these other northern cities. Uh, and am I correct in understanding that there's a group that is hoping that they can turn the Phyllis Wheatley home into a house museum and, and preserve this important yes. part of... Um, black history in, in the city? Yes, that's correct. And, uh, you know, we're hoping that uh, the Phyllis Wheatley story um, and that legacy can still help uh, women and maybe women and children uh, as time goes on, um, uh, you know, and, and be a resource for the community. And the, uh, the, the current owner of the house has owned it for uh, probably pretty close to 40 years, between 30 and 40 years wonderful lady. She raised her 10 children in this house, and uh, unfortunately, there's, there were just some problems with uh, primarily the back wall and roof, and I think it just kind of uh, exacerbated um, itself over the last uh, few years. So we're hoping that uh, this important legacy in history can be honored and landmarked uh, as, as, as an important African-American site. And as you know, we were very much involved in uh, landmarking the Emmett Till and Mamie mm-hmm. Till Mobley residents and uh, uh, telling that larger story that of, of Emmett as a child uh, that got caught in this nightmare, but trying to emphasize uh, the work of his mother and Emmett the person um, before getting on the train and, and going down south um, to Mississippi and uh, and worked with the community and uh, a community organization named uh, Blacks and Green, mm-hmm. uh, headed by Naomi Davis, is now the owner of the Emmett and Mamie Till Mobley House, and, and that will be open as a house museum. We're really excited to continue to help and steward with uh, that project. But uh, Blacks and Green uh, has got a, an amazing vision, and uh, they're working with all of us collectively to, uh, to see this vision realized. Well, I think it'd be really wonderful to have both the Phyllis Wheatley home and the Emma Till house open as house museums. Uh, but as, as you know, um, recording this episode in, in March of, of 21, and there are some challenges being raised to the whole idea of having house museums that are um, located within residential communities. Do you have any thoughts about some of the concerns that are being raised? Um, sure, sure. Uh, well, you know, first of all, uh, uh, we were made aware of this. This was kind of, uh, uh, it appeared to be sort of veiled, if you will, in a little bit of secrecy. Uh, you know, we're not all aware of, um, you know, the ordinances, uh, each one of them and amendments to ordinances that come in, uh, you know, to a big city like Chicago. But uh, uh, there is an alderman, an alder woman here who wanted to uh, prohibit uh, house museums, which have been allowed for more than 50 years in Chicago, and we have some fabulous house museums and uh, some future house museums, and uh, we put a little list together, 
and we're above 85. And if you put uh, a couple of others that are still in the planning stages together, we're uh, about 91 to 95 institutions, including those by, uh, you know, H.H. Richardson, the Glessner House, the mm-hmm. Charnley House uh, by Ather and Sullivan with Frank Lloyd Wright, the Roby House by Frank Lloyd Wright, the Graham Foundation. You know, uh, a lot of these uh, originally included libraries, so uh, libraries couldn't be in residential zone districts and uh, or art galleries or, you know, people wanting to host an, uh, an, art, art, an art exhibition in their homes mm-hmm. would be prohibited by this, and it would also stop the Emmett Till and Mamie Till Mobley House and the Wheatley House perhaps from becoming house museums. I would grandfather in some of the old ones, but, you know, if we're changing all the rules on everybody, who's to say in the coming months or years we wouldn't change them again and perhaps everything uh, could be in danger. So we find these uh, institutions to be very much a part of the fabric and the culture and the history of our city. And, uh, of course, churches and uh, temples and synagogues, uh, houses of worship are, are mostly all in a residential res, residential zone district. So, you know, it really does create um, a, a litany of issues. And we've started a change.org petition. And of and of the smor- as of this morning, uh, we're approaching 10,000 signatures collected in about four or five days uh, in communities across Chicago and elsewhere. Uh, people are reaching out at a incredible rate. Uh, so there's a lot of robust support for not having this amendment uh, or ordinance uh, pass, and it will pass uh, or fail um, uh, before the City Council Committee on uh, Zoning, Landmarks, and Building Standards this Tuesday, March 23, 2021. So we're very hopeful that, um, that this uh, ordinance will be opposed and will not be forwarded on to the city council, which could happen as early as the next day when the city council meets. So there really is a tremendous urgency here, and uh, it's thought that maybe this uh, all emanated from uh, a museum that's uh, in the alderman's ward. And, um, you know, it's really unfortunate that, uh, you know, not in my backyard seems to resonate um, often in our uh, robust community discussions across Chicago. And that's really unfortunate because these are learning opportunities or educational opportunities, and um, it, it, it makes our city more interesting, more diverse. And, of course, a lot of these house museums are in historic buildings, and um, these nonprofit organizations do so much in outreach, and uh, it's unfortunate that they would even be at risk. Also, with um, also the Muddy Waters house, uh, the blues legend Muddy Waters, uh, his granddaughter wants to turn his house into a museum, also in Alderman King's uh, ward, as well as the Elijah Muhammad hmm. um, house, as well as um, uh, a couple of others. So, I, you know, it, it's just it's uh, it's wrenching to to see our cultural institutions undermined, if you will. Well, we're going to have to pause here. Um, We're talking to Ward Miller of Preservation Chicago, and when we return, we're going to go through the rest of the list of Chicago's seven most endangered. We're back with Pocket Guide to Hell, the radio show. Our guest in this episode is Ward Miller, Executive Director of Preservation Chicago. 
Uh, we are looking at the list of Chicago's seven most endangered buildings. In the first part, we discussed the Cornell Store and Flats, the South Chicago Masonic Temple, and the Phyllis Wheatley Home, um, all on the south side of the city. But we're going to take a quick detour up to the north side and talk about a cluster of buildings that are on the list. And those are the West Loop Industrial Lofts. Uh, and some of the, the structures the Preservation Chicago has identified might surprise uh, some of our listeners um, because they're, they're fairly well-known buildings within the city. So, so Ward, do you want to tell us a little bit about this, this cluster of buildings and kind of what led to them ending up on the list this year? Sure. So uh, we have uh, three wonderful buildings that we thought would sort of emphasize this category that are all industrial buildings uh, at the perimeter, the western perimeter of the Loop, which, as we know, has uh, experienced a great renaissance in recent uh, years, uh, especially directly west of, um, of the Loop along uh, Randolph, uh, Fulton Market, and other streets but uh, nearby but also keeping in mind that um, other, other buildings that are in close proximity that are not part of any type of protected landmark district are really at risk. And, you know, one of them is the Cassidy Tire Building. Uh, this was built as the uh, Tyler and Hippick Glass Company building uh, in about 1907. And it stands on historic Wolf Point where, you know, Chicago began and this is a beautiful uh, five-story red brick building. And, you know, you see the Cassidy signs on it, uh, which are uh, right. kind of, take, it sort of takes you away from the architecture of the building. But if you look at the building, it's truly, truly a Chicago school. It's a small Chicago school building and uh, just a remarkable structure. Uh, and it's got that clarity of a Chicago school building. And it was designed by Henry Schlax, who was so notable for his ecclesiastical designs. He designed so many of the wonderful churches, a lot of them uh, threatened with closure or consolidation from St. Mary of the Lake to St. Adelbert or St. Adelbert. If you're, if you're in Pilsen, that's mm -hmm. how it's known, St. Adelbert, um, and uh, uh, quite a few others, uh, St. Boniface and, and uh, the Shrine of Christ the King, originally St. Clara, um, and he was Cardinal Mundelein's favorite ecclesiastical architect. architect. And uh, here's, here's a wonderful building uh, in the path of harm's way, and it's surrounded by uh, high-rises that have uh, popped up over the last few years. And uh, we'd like to see this integrated into the base of that high-rise. It was already moved at the turn of the century after, when it was fairly new, has moved a few hundred feet out of the way of uh, the Northwestern hmm. rail, Railroad right-of-way tracks. Uh, and so we feel that this building really could shine as part of a larger development on that site. But, you know, keep in mind that if this particular location, having a little breathability between all these high-rise buildings, having a low-rise or a smaller building there, really allows the sunlight and the air to come down and uh, to the street level and tell us a little history about, um, you know, the built environment at this location. And I think we have to be really careful, Paul, because, um, you know, if, if we end up with, you know, high rises like trees in a forest where everybody's, every building is throwing a shadow on the other and everybody's looking into everybody's apartment, well, you know, I don't think that's so desirable. And I think we could actually harm 
the golden goose, if you will, um, with you know too much density in one particular site. So I think really keeping these buildings, these historic buildings, which allow for small businesses and restaurants and whatnot to open up in and have cafes on their roof and uh, gardens at their base, I think they really are important to our city's environment. We saw that with the Near North Landmark District in and around North Michigan Avenue where uh, 15 houses, uh, vintage houses from the turn of the century, from the Chicago fire, just after the Chicago fire uh, to uh, 1910, 1912, were, were, were protected um, in order to save that sort of quality and allow, um, you know, beautiful small businesses and cafes and, and coffee shops to open in these buildings rather than looking at these large buildings with these, uh, oftentimes you have a large parking structure at the base. And that sort of lacks human scale and kind of dehumanizes us a little bit. So uh, this is one of those great buildings. And, and the same is true with the Salvation Army building, mm-hmm. which is on Union, just off of Grand Avenue, just a little east of Halstead. Right. This which was originally the... Ri- right? This, oh, yeah. Right. Oh, no, and it really surprised me to see that building on this list, because, I, I mean, I feel that's a building that probably a lot of our, our listeners have actually been inside and, and maybe have even shopped there, because it's, it's still a Salvation Army, right? Right. The, the retail store is still there. Uh, the offices have moved out. But, you know, here's an amazing, you know, 1880s, 1890s uh, uh, factory buildings, two mm-hmm. red brick factory buildings that in their own right are really wonderful. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you've got this art modern, art deco, if you will, um, uh, staircase and entry and, and tower, if you will, that unites these two structures together. And it's really a, a very unusual design and very unusual building. And it really does captivate uh, people in a big way. And it's mm-hmm. uh, really a wonderful building. But these are the buildings we should be figuring a way to protect. Uh, and if not landmark, figure out another tool uh, to just, uh, you know, to protect these buildings, because right now, you know, we have zoning, we have landmarks, and, you know, they're introducing conservation districts, but, um, you know, some of these buildings don't fit into the conservation district idea, so we need another way to protect buildings in mm-hmm. Chicago, and more incentives, more tools. And, and collectively, these three buildings, I mean, also are an important um marker of Chicago's industrial past and, and Chicago's might. So, I mean, most listeners today, they'll, they'll recognize um, the Cassidy Tire Building because of the prominent sign. Um, but you mentioned that there was also a, a glass company that was there. And of course, plate glass is, is a big part of the whole, uh, you know, Chicago School of Architecture. When we think about some of Louis Sullivan's buildings, like the, the Carson Peary Scott Building, for example, or other um, noted, you know, early skyscrapers. Um, like the Marquette building. Yes. Uh, and, yes. you know, and, and that there's some interesting stories, too, even behind the, the, the people connected to those companies. So uh, Louis Hippock, um, I mean, he has a connection to some significant events in, in Chicago history and American history, tragic events, though. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then, uh, and then I also wanted to mention uh, the third one that I didn't get a chance to introduce yet. Uh, forgive mm-hmm. me for that. And that's the... ADM plant and silos. This is on Carroll Street near Ogden Avenue. And this is a series of uh, loft buildings dating from uh, the 1890s, uh, a six-story building, 
with a four-story building and then those concrete silos. Uh, and this was, uh, you know, a, a flour mill mm-hmm. plant in ADM, uh, Archer Daniels Midland, right. bought it about 25 years ago and was operating really uh, Chicago's oldest flour mill on the site. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, it was purchased. And we were hoping, after meeting with the developer, that, uh, you know, this would be saved. There was, you know, a lot of conversation about reworking some of these, the, the Carroll Street facade particularly, mm-hmm. into a larger development uh, behind, if you will, even if it required removing some of the buildings uh, uh, behind this uh, amazing street front on Carroll. And we were really excited about that. We actually wanted this to be part of the Randolph-Fulton Market Landmark District, but, you know, it's a few blocks further west and a little more removed, but uh, you know, these structures are really, really amazing. It'd be wonderful if we could get these developers uh, to really recognize the importance of these historic structures. And I think, you know, wrestling with these structures, if you will, as part of your larger development oftentimes brings about an even more interesting development uh, and a more sensitive development that embraces that history and, of course, extends the life of these buildings uh, perhaps another 100 years. And I, I think we really we're losing these at a great pace. It'd be really wonderful to integrate these uh, into these larger uh, projects. We're not anti-development of Preservation Chicago. Mm-hmm. We're actually pro-development. We want to see investment in our landmarks and uh, and these historic buildings. And uh, so we're not trying to freeze these buildings in time uh, like right. an art piece, but we want to see them integrated. Uh, into developments if there is a development, uh, but saved and reused and, and sensitively uh, saved and repurposed. Right, but I mean, these are the sorts of buildings that I think, because of their industrial past, often get perhaps undervalued. And yet, they're the, that's where the work was happening that, you know, Carl Sandburg was describing in his poem from 1914, right, in which Chicago is the city of the big shoulders. So you've got the, the mill, Right, and, and grain was a huge industry. Well, we talked about the glass, um, but what I, I you know, and most people know of the Salvation Army building as the Salvation Army building, but um, but apparently they made something there prior to that that was more or less like a, like margarine. It was like a, a yes, butter, yes, you know? yeah. and dairy was a huge <laughs> industry. Butterine, here. butterine, butterine, butterine. butterine. Yes, oh, yes, sounds butterine. Uh, sounds scrumptious. Um, it, it does. It was so, sort of like an early margarine. You're exactly right. right. And the butter industry, the milk and butter and egg industry, did push back. That's that's another story for another session, right, right. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but staying on this theme of you know Chicago's an industrial past and, and how it can you know survive and in, into the present and, and perhaps you know how some of these wonderful structures can be repurposed. Let's go back to the south side um, and, and look at the area known as the Central Manufacturing District and in particular the kind of uh, older sort of eastern portion of that. Uh, so tell our listeners, you know, what was the, the Central Manufacturing District? So the Central Manufacturing District was a vision uh, sort of tied, if you will, to the idea of grouping businesses together in industries, kind of like what we saw with the Union Stockyards, where, you know, the big three meat packers came together. Uh, this was... Um, this was the idea of, of building upon some of those same uh, ideas and bringing manufacturing all into one district to be able to have a sort of uniformity and um, 
a sharing of services. So uh, buildings that were built by a group of prominent architects from Alfred Allshuler to Samuel Scott Joy uh, and others, uh, and they, they were an area which we now know as probably the western part of Bridgeport along Ashland Avenue and extending a few blocks east on streets like Iron and, and, um, and other streets between 35th and 37th, 39th, um, Pershing Road, if you will. And this is a group of uh, quite a few buildings. There are about 26 of them that remain. Uh, the Wrigley uh, Spear- the Wrigley Gum Factory, I wanted to say Wrigley Spearmint Gum, but they have a wide variety of gums, um, were originally manufactured in this belt. And we've seen uh, that building uh, demolished, which was not supposed to be demolished. Uh, there was a promise to keep it. And also the Larkin Soap Factory was just uh, a, a rather massive building of seven or eight stories was just demolished this year. But this is really a group of really wonderful um, structures that uh, oftentimes shared a lot of uh, central ideas as far as shipping goes, uh, rail transit, um, services like uh, switchboards and and operators and heating plants, uh, and so that you could almost uh, think of this as as one large uh, industrial development, even though it it occupied several, um, well, actually many uh, smaller buildings that looked like they were independent uh, of one another, but actually designed in an array of materials uh, that were celebrated with, uh, you know, beautiful terracotta doorways integrated into the the facades. Walgreens had a a building uh, in this location that still stands, and you can see the shadowing of the Walgreens uh, drug name, you know, just over the doorway as well. And then a few years later, this was so successful, a few years later, they built the Central Manufacturing District uh, Pershing Road, uh, which are those probably the more prominently known buildings because they're taller, they're larger, and they march down Pershing Road with a big clock tower in the middle. They're double stacked. In other words, they're they're two two buildings deep, and uh, those were on our Chicago 7 most endangered list last year. Both districts have been added to the National Register of Historic Places. So if you were going to invest in these buildings, there are a lot of tax incentives, um, a lot of overall incentives that could be used here. We're trying to encourage these both be considered for Chicago landmark designation, as with that also comes the possibility of applying for adopt-a-landmark monies. And these range from the usual gift of $250,000 to $3 million if you're the Uptown Theater. And this does not come from a taxpayer fund or the general fund. This comes from a developer fund. So developers who want to create a taller building downtown, increase their, their FAR, their floor area ratio, they pay into a neighborhood opportunity fund. And a certain percentage of that, estimated to be about 10%, goes to designated Chicago landmarks for for their repair uh, to fill gaps uh, and to also um, help maintain these buildings and encourage more buildings to become landmarks. It's another carrot, if you will, another incentive. Hmm. Well, another set of structures that was also on a previous year <coughs> list were Roman Catholic churches. Um, so what led you guys to, to put Roman Catholic churches back on the list of Chicago's seven most endangered buildings. Right. So this was, uh, well, thank you for that. Um, 
Paul, you know, this was one of our Chicago, Chicago 7 most endangered in 2019 when there were about 25 um, Roman Catholic churches um, that were selected uh, to be consolidated or closed. And, and some of those did consolidate and some of those did close, like St. Adalbert's and Pilsen. Um, and uh, uh, this year, uh, we were very much alarmed by realizing that there were more than 88 churches in Chicago that were consolidating, merging, closing, or for sale. And we find this alarming. Um, this is happening with with number, you know, numbers of, of houses of worship, not only in Chicago, but across the nation and across the world. But uh, oftentimes these Catholic churches have a, uh, in particular, have a very large scale to them. Uh, they were, uh, they're, they're oftentimes cornerstones and gateways to the community. Oftentimes you can see their steeples for miles in each direction. And these churches are uh, uh, threatened with closure and consolidation, and sometimes, as I mentioned, for sale. And we think this is a, a, a travesty. Um, the uh, Archdiocese of Chicago, which owns a lot of these churches, um, you know, is a corporation, and we have to realize that it is a corporation, even though it's got a, a, a religious purpose to it. Um, and we think that these are great losses to the communities. Not only are these centers of faith, but, you know, they're food pantries, they're social service agencies that are often tied to these churches. Um, they're they're uh, uh, places where one could get a hot meal. Uh, there's places for child care, um, and often tied to a school and a, a much larger network. And, and when these buildings close and these churches close, and, and when that tough decision is made, um, you know, it's oftentimes devastating to the community. Sometimes it's uh, one of the last resources available to the community. So really, we, we think that beyond, of course, the faith issues, uh, these buildings, these structures, and these organizations that are so vital uh, to communities across the city should be maintained and stewarded. And uh, we're also seeing violations of canon law, uh, where these buildings, which were built by the faithful or in the community, uh, with pennies, nickels, and dimes, and oftentimes given to the Archdiocese of Chicago to staff and steward and maintain, um, are being sold at a premium price, sometimes millions of dollars. And uh, canon law says that if there is another Catholic entity or faith uh, that's, that is able to take these buildings, that they should be given to them, and we're seeing these rules not, in general, not followed, which is very disturbing. And uh, we're not a plaintiff on the case, but we're very much aware of a group of individuals that are taking these closures to the Vatican in Rome, um, where the, these appeals are filed in English, uh, they're translated into Italian, and then as they go into the Vatican, they're translated and debated in, into in ecclesiastical Latin um, on the third Thursday of each month, where um, each side presents its case separately at a separate court date often, and then a decision is rendered. And Chicago has more uh, challenges in the Vatican than any other city in the nation. And I think they're um, approaching 26 uh, challenges 
And we very much support the idea of these challenges to encourage the archdiocese to um, to consider uh, gifting some of these uh, immense buildings uh, to these other organizations as chapels, as places of contemplation and refuge, even if they don't have a traditional parish or service, or if that service is limited to weddings and funerals uh, and special occasions and perhaps uh, uh, the namesake of the church, if there's a you know a day in the calendar uh, uh, for the naming, the person of, of naming, or the saint of naming for that particular parish, and it's perhaps its founding date. But I think we can do this in Chicago and also uh, still have places for food pantries and child care services, um, even if these uh, large entities and these, these Catholic uh, churches are uh, re-envisioned in another way, uh, but still provide a place for um, for community meetings and for, for concerts and uh, all sorts of um, uh, cultural and arts exhibitions that are in um, in keeping with canon law. Uh, and there are some strict regulations there, but I think we could all be very creative and, and make these kinds of ideas work throughout our city. To see 88 churches um, uh, perhaps consolidated or 25 of them uh, lost or or redeveloped into or demolished, uh, I think is 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 really could have a profound effect on many of our neighborhoods. I, and I think we need, and maybe some of these are cultural centers at the end of the day, um, but but you know keeping the idea of the building intact. And I think that's you know a possibility as well. Um, I think there are lots of different solutions. And I think each one of these buildings and campuses in all these communities should be evaluated evaluated on a case-by-case basis. Well, yes. I mean, I think it's, it's worth rethinking some of these churches as community resources. And we're going to end today um, by looking at the last item on the list, which perhaps is the resource that touches the most communities in Chicago. Um, and also something of a surprise on, on the list this year, and that's the Chicago Lakefront. Uh, so why did you guys decide to include the lakefront uh, and a list of Chicago's seven most endangered buildings? Well, uh, you know, Paul, the uh, Chicago lakefront really does tie us all together as a city. Um, it's something that belongs to all all of us as Chicagoans. And if you're a visitor, you know, um, your chances are you're going to be on our lakefront. And it's an amazing resource in um, one of our most prominent, if not the most prominent, feature of our city. And uh, if you're like me, every spring uh, you, vi- you go visit the lakefront and you're overwhelmed by its beauty, uh, the vastness of, of Lake Michigan, the vastness of our park system. And, you know, that vastness and that idea of a park system started a year before Chicago was incorporated in 1837. This idea of, of a park and lakefront land being open, forever open, free, and clear is goes back to 1836 in um, an area that uh, can be considered part of Grant Park today. And, of course, Grant Park uh, applies to that law, and a gentleman named A. Montgomery Ward, Aaron Montgomery Ward, uh, who was the famous retailer and catalog merchant and uh, uh, later retail merchant, 
uh, fought to preserve the Chicago lakefront and keep the Field Museum basically uh, from going where Buckingham Fountain is today. Um, and the Field Museum was built on on land, railroad land, that was reclaimed. And the parks actually grew around these institutions. And, uh, and then the idea of the park and the lakefront uh, continued to grow through various plans and, of course, uh, all brought together um, with all these different ideas from all these spectacular architects. And we're seeing uh, uh, political giveaways where parkland that's belonged to the citizens of Chicago for more than a century, in some, in some locations, 130 years, um, uh, being given away. And, you know, one, um, one uh, such instance is the, uh, the Children's Museum that was uh, wanting to move into Grant Park from Navy Pier and build a building there. Another was the Lucas Museum that was to be built adjacent to Soldier Field. And then another example is uh, the Obama Presidential Center that's to be built on 20 acres. However, we think that there are adjacent sites in the Woodlawn community and the Hyde Park community and the South Shore community that would be ideal, and even the Washington Park community, just west of Washington Park, that would be ideal for the center, which is a 230-foot tower. It's basically a 20-story building. So, um, uh, And then also looking to the South Lakefront, the former U.S. Steel site in South Chicago is a brownfield, and, of course, there's plans to build a lot of housing there, which, you know, we understand uh, Chicago needs a lot of affordable housing, and we're for that. But uh, shouldn't some of this land be considered for uh, green space, for a new park, an extension of that parkland, and, and joined to that arm of Lakeshore Drive that opened a few years ago, um, at connecting Rainbow Beach with South Chicago? Right. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have some green space, turn a brownfield into green space? And then we have, of course, erosion, uh, late rising lake levels, and climate change, which are really impacting buildings along uh, mm -hmm. in South Shore and also in Rogers Park on the lakefront. And wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to fill that in? And we have this grand idea that what if we made this a national park, much like the Pullman National Monument on the right. south side? Uh, I love going to the national parks, toured many of them, and they're uh, our, our, one of America's greatest gifts um, to its citizens. And uh, wouldn't that be wonderful if the Chicago lakefront were a national park and uh, we had that extra layer of of help, of funding, of maintenance, and then maybe the park district and the city could look at creating more parks elsewhere in the inner city and more programs for children and adults and not be cash-strapped like this and not let these buildings fall into disrepair. Well, we'll have to uh, leave it there with that really amazing vision of a potential future for the lakefront. Uh, I want to tell our listeners that if they'd like to learn more, they can always go to preservationchicago.org. Uh, where you'll find the list of Chicago's seven most endangered buildings, not just from 2021, um, but as, as Ward mentioned, uh, Preservation Chicago has been releasing these lists for 18 years now. Absolutely. Uh, Paul, thank you so much. And just want to let uh, your listeners know that uh, we do have a free newsletter. It's, it's an e-newsletter. E it's the Preservation Chicago month in review, so it always comes out the month, the, the week after the month is over to capture all the news of that month, and uh, would welcome any of your listeners to uh, join us and engage us, so thank you for your time today, Paul. 
Well, thank you. And have a good rest of your day. Thanks again, Ward. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.